in regards to the five solas of the Reformation. How can, we, how can we find out how we can be right with God? The answer is the Bible's the only way that we can find that out. Question number two would be, what does the Bible tell us about how to be right with God? Well, it tells us that Jesus is the only way. What is it about Jesus? Question three. Well, it's the grace of God that comes through Jesus. How do we acquire that grace? It's through faith alone that that grace is acquired. No merit of our own is what the song we just sang uh, said. And then fifthly, why has God chosen to save people in this way? It's because then he receives the glory of God alone. Where is boasting when it's done like this? Who brags about being saved when God has done everything? God initiates it and God uh, accomplishes it for us. I love those questions. Very helpful. We come to the fourth of the five solas. We've already talked about the Bible alone, sola scriptura. We've already talked about Christ alone. We've talked about grace alone, and now we come to faith alone. In other words, how we acquire the grace of God. This is where everybody gets it wrong. They get it wrong in the other places too, but they tend to give lip service to the other places. They, they hold up the Bible as a sacred relic. They, they appreciate Christ for his character and, and human goodness. They, they want God's grace. They believe God is a God of love, but but how do you acquire that is, is the big dividing line. Justification by faith alone is the dividing line between true Christians and all those who are false believers. How you are declared right with God is that dividing line. And we have the greats of the faith like Paul and Luther, to, Paul who explained it initially and then Luther who recovered it for us. The moment he was chosen to go to Rome himself, was a, was a great moment of honor that he would have this pilgrimage to Rome as a monk. And he goes there and he begins climbing up those stairs on his knees and gets to the top and says, who knows if it worked? And he came to Romans 1.17 where it says, the just shall live by faith. And as I said, he excavated that doctrine for us as well as others so that we have it today proclaimed that the doctrine of justification that a way a person is made right with God or declared right with God is that it comes through faith alone now I brought us to Romans 3 to talk about this Romans 3 and 4 and uh, at some point I, I hope at some point Lord willing we'll go through Romans verse by verse but but Romans is is kind of the Everest of doctrine there are some high peaks in the book of Romans, and it's a daunting challenge uh, to go through. And I want to be sure that I'm prepared for that. So we're just going to kind of dip our toes in to Romans today um, because it, it is the glorious telling of the gospel. It, it Really, Romans is the book that tells us how we can be, be right with God. And this glimpse of justification by faith alone is found here, especially in chapters 3 and 4. Before we even get to the verses that we read, you might glance back to verses 1 to 18 and just look over some of these verses where it talks about what our condition is. What is the need that we find ourselves in? I, I break it down, especially verses 10 to 17, in, in these ways. It, it talks about our character. It talks about our conversation and it talks about our conduct. That's, that's just a kind of a, a small outline here as we begin. Our character, our conversation, and our conduct. If you look at verses 10 and 12, it talks about our character. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is, this is our, our character. It's completely spiritually bankrupt and morally empty. It's spiritually bankrupt. No one understands. No one seeks. And, and morally empty. There is no one that does good. Remember when the, when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to gain eternal life? Remember Jesus' response? You'd think Jesus would just respond and say, sign this card or repeat after me. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? There is no one good but God. No one is good but God. And, and you wish that the guy would have said, well, then you must be God. He didn't say that. Anyway, that's a, that's a, I digress from that. But, but the point is that spiritually bankrupt, morally empty, there are not good people. We are all wicked, evil, sinful, totally depraved people. And, and by that I say it's, it's universally applied. I mean, how many times, I mean, Paul is not allowing for any wiggle room here. Right, starting in verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. They become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Well, what about my granny? Right? right? You, you know what I mean? Well, what about, but, but that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean people who, yeah, it means everybody. This is universally applied. The character applies to every single person who has ever lived. They inherit that sin nature at conception, passed on from their father, Adam, and they are morally empty. That then finds its way out in their conversation, Romans 3, 13 and 14. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. The nature of our character then bears its fruit on our lips. In fact, we just came through this passage in Luke 6, 45, when it says, out of the treasure of his heart, man brings forth. Because of the nature of their character, man brings forth this evil from their conversation and then also in their conduct or their actions. Romans 3, 15 and 17. Their feet are swift to to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. They are the way of peace they have not known. And actions are quick to follow their character. Ultimately, this lifestyle is all defined because these people do not, and this pe by these people, I mean everyone who's ever lived, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And look at the conclusions that he comes to. So after Paul lays out this great news that everybody's a completely wicked, tainted sinner, and not a good person, he then brings three conclusions to us in verses 19 and 20. Verse 19 says, we don't have anything to say before God. Every mouth is stopped. No one has an excuse or a reason or a complaint. It's like, just keep your mouth closed because you have nothing to say. And the reason you have nothing to say, second application, is because we are guilty before God. We are held accountable by our actions. And that accountability is our guilt. We have all wronged God by nature and action. So we have nothing to say. We are stand guilty before Him in verse 20 is application number 3. You can't overcome this by your works. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in His sight. It's not like we got a DUI and we stand before the judge and say, 
well, I was at a bachelor party and I, I got a little carried away and I, I'm really sorry about it and it won't happen again. And the judge says, 40 hours of community service. Right? You do those works and then that'll kind of, that, that's kind of the payment. For, that's not the way it works. Our, our sin is against an eternal and, and perfectly holy God. It cannot be overcome with our good deeds. There is nothing anyone can do to acquire that faith by their works. Okay? I know you've heard this all your life, but, but it's something that we need to revisit and rethink about constantly. So that all religions, as I said, it's, it's the dividing line, this idea of justification by faith, which I'm going to explain. The dividing line splits all religions into two categories, right? On your bulletin, draw a line. There's two categories of religion. In category number one, are all the religions that are marked by things that we do for God. Okay? In that category, there's all these religions that are marked by things that we do for God. And in category number two, is all the religions that are marked by what God, yeah, you got it, what God has done for us. And anybody on this side of the line that says, well, I'm doing something for God, doesn't understand Romans 3, 10 to 19. When it says, what, what can an evil, sinful, wicked person ever present to God that will overcome their sins? It's like their mouths are stopped, they're held accountable for their guilt, and no works can overcome that and make themselves righteous in God's sight. Now, here's, here's what I want. I, I want to give another outline, okay? So that, that's kind of just the beginning. I'm, I'm excited about presenting this next section here. Romans, can re Romans really is a book about righteousness. In fact, you might even write that at the front of the book of Romans. It, Romans tells you how to obtain righteousness. And I said last week that the thing that a person must have to be right with God is righteousness. You must be perfectly and completely holy. So let's break it down this way. I think this is what Romans talks about in the whole, really it's the theme of the whole Bible. Okay? <clears throat> First is this. Uh, and this, we have one, two, three. One, God is righteous. God is is righteous. In Romans, the phrase the righteousness of God is repeated over and over again. And the word of can be interpreted in several different ways. And sometimes I think on, based on the context is the way we have to interpret it. But the righteousness of God can mean that it is the righteousness that belongs to him. Right? That is, that is the car of Dave outside. Right? That, that is the car that belongs to him. That is the righteousness of God, it belongs to Him. And that phrase, the righteousness of God, tells us that, that He possesses it, that He alone is good. I already mentioned that passage where Jesus says, no one is good but God. And it also shows up in Romans 1 where God's righteousness is totally opposed to all wickedness and sin and in all of its forms. God's righteousness shows up and exposes itself in its wrath towards unrighteousness. It's like two opposing magnets. God's righteousness is completely and totally against all unrighteousness. And Romans 1 discusses all of that. God is righteous. Two, God demands righteousness. God demands righteousness. Since He is righteous, He demands that righteousness surround Him. And what kind of righteousness does He demand? What kind of righteousness does God demand surrounds him? Yeah, and, and here's how I want to say it. It's got to be a righteousness. Well, let's think about it this way. 
what, what type of righteousness does the world think is necessary to gain acceptance with God and to acquire his favor? What type of righteousness? Okay, a self-righteousness, and how do they know if they've obtained it? How do, how do people know? How do, how do people clarify that, well, they, they've got it. What do, they te- what do they typically do? Okay, it's a comparison game, right? It's a comparison game. They, they look at somebody else who may be a little more wicked than they. They say, well, I know I've got some problems, but they got some big problems. And I go to work, and I care for my family, and I'm a decent guy, and I pay my tax, right? And I'm a, I'm a good person. And you can always find someone lower on the scale. Well, God isn't demanding kind of a, he doesn't grade on the curve. God, God isn't saying, okay, everybody who kind of gets a C plus is going to be okay. God demands a righteousness that is compared to his own. He demands a righteousness that is equal to his own. He must be surrounded by others who are righteous just as he is righteous. He's not going to be surrounded by people who are kind of good and people who have reached a certain level. They must attain the same level of righteousness that he has. It's it's not just that he is righteous. He demands that anything that surrounds him is as equally as righteous as he is. Now, doesn't that, like, it's like if you're standing on the porch talking to somebody about the gospel and they say, a good, they say they're a good person, isn't it, doesn't that truth kind of light a bomb on their porch? It's kind of like, it's kind of like you just go, pss, pss, boom, because that whole argument just shrivels when a person says, well, I'm a decent person. And then you say, well, God demands that you be on the same level as he. You know what happens then? Romans 3.19. Every mouth is stopped. And all the world, only the most arrogant, hypocritical people would say, I got the same righteousness as God, right? He demands that that righteousness be the same. So how are you going to get it? Right? How are you going to get that? Well, I'm just going to work really hard and eventually I'll make it to the level of God's righteousness. I mean, doesn't that sound stupid to even say that? So thirdly, God is righteous. God demands that equal righteousness. In fact, you might even put a little arrow between demands and righteousness and say equal, because it's got to be equal to his. What do you think number three is? You're right in the sermon. God is righteous. He demands righteousness. And he, let's use provides. We'll talk about that in a second. He provides the righteousness. He demands it of us. He knows we can't earn it, so he provides it for us. Amen to that. You never could get it if He didn't provide it. Because there is no one who is righteous like Him, He Himself has chosen to supply His own righteousness to those who are unrighteous. (laughs) That's insane. That is insane. Interestingly, any heresy that arises arises because people deny one of these three truths. Think about that with me for a minute. God is righteous, God demands righteousness, and God provides righteousness. R.A. Torrey, who was the president of Moody Bible Institute, said that it is a shallow view of sin and God's holiness that leads us to believe that God would not penalize and punish sinners. And we hear it this way today. Well, my God would never send anyone to hell. My God is a God of? 
love. So they're basically saying, my God is a God of love, not my God is a God of, number one, righteousness. Is God a God of love? You better believe it, because look at number three. But is God a God of righteousness? And how was that righteousness displayed? I already gave, I gave it to you earlier. How was that righteousness exposed? In his wrath against unrighteousness, right? So he's going to punish that. He's going to penalize it. So it's people who have a shallow view of the holiness or righteousness of God and a shallow view of their sins that, that discredit God's righteousness and think that someday he's going to allow everybody to you know, come into heaven. This has been a long-standing belief. I didn't mention it in Sunday school, but Macrina, remember the woman we studied, Macrina? People who are universalists today, and universalism is the idea that eventually everyone will be saved. Someone just wrote a book called Love Wins that believes even the devil will eventually come to repentance. Cuckoo, burn these books, right? It's ridiculous. But, but universalists point back to Macrina, who lived in 300 and claims that she was a universalist. She believed that everybody eventually would be... That is, that is horrendous. That is heresy. It is only the people who have acquired by faith the grace of God and his righteousness that will eventually be in heaven for all of eternity. So a denial of the righteousness of Christ leads to heresy. In fact, it is the whole... We, we think back to the fear of God, uh, verse number 18. The fear of God really is an understanding of his holiness. It should be the holiness and righteousness of God that brings us to a really a holy dread. You know, Go walk down Tilson Street tonight in the dark and see some skeletons and be freaked out a little bit. You know, I'm, I'm scared. I, I don't like watching a scary movie. Well, think about this. There is a holy and righteous God whose eternal wrath and indignation is already abiding on you, John 3.36, and is one day just being waited, waiting to pour out in all of its fullness as you are separated from him for all of eternity. Oh, well, well. <laughs> right? Think of Isaiah 6. When Isaiah saw God high and lifted up in his throne, holy, holy, holy is the... Woe unto me, Lord, for I am a man of unclean lips. I'm undone. And we just kind of ho-hum that. Tori is exactly right. We have a shallow view of God and his righteousness. What if we depart from the second thought? The idea that God will let me get by on a judgment of a, quote, lower scale than the absolute perfect righteousness that he demands. I really like that thought about God being surrounded by a righteousness that is equal to doing to, to his own righteousness. So there's no comparing ourselves and this negates, of course, the doing our best uh, mantra that pervades our culture and our churches. And departing from the third category of God providing righteousness, a lot of people and most people believe God does something but we contribute something as well and all to depart from any of those truths is, is to, to lead oneself into heresy. So in regards to righteousness, we have the character of God, his demands, and his provision. So let's transition in verse 21 because there's some great transitions in the Bible. The word but in the Bible it would be a great word to study because there's so many of them where you talk about such a terrible and traumatic and tra tragic experience and then the, the but transitions us into a different category. And in verse 21 we have but now okay think of all we studied in verses 10 to 18 about about our conversation and our character and our conduct and our guilt before god and our mouths are stopped and we have nothing we can do to attain it but god has done something big thought of the lesson today this is a big thought star this think this what man could not produce god has provided what man cannot produce 
God has provided. What am I talking about? Righteousness. Man cannot produce it, so God provided it. So now let's talk about three more things before we quit. We're not anywhere close to quitting yet, but let's talk about these three things. Verse 21, let's make some three major applications here, or, or at least statements, what the Bible says about it. The Bible says God is going to provide this righteousness, and everybody says, oh, great. And there could be some false things that we think about, but, so let's walk through it. Verse 21, we already read it all at our Scripture reading time, but let's read verses 21 and 22 again. But now, okay, there's the transition. The righteousness of God, that is the righteousness that He possesses, and wants to give, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Let's make this point first. Number one, what is, what is this righteousness that God provides? Okay, first, the righteousness of God comes apart from the law. I'm just saying what the Bible says. The righteousness of God comes apart from the law. Just if, if you write that down, then look at verse 28. We hold that, that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Galatians 2.16 is a cross-reference that would be wonderful for you to look at as well. By the, the deeds of the flesh can no man be justified. Okay, so we have this important term, justified. Verse number 20, uh, 28. Uh, verse number uh, 26 uses it as well. And we cannot, claim to be, uh, we cannot claim to be knowledgeable Christians unless we understand the words that the Bible uses. So here's what justified means or justification means. Justification is very simple. It means to be declared righteous. We are not made righteous. We are declared righteous. If you were made righteous, what would stop? Somebody said it. Yeah, your sin would stop. You're not made righteous, you're declared righteous. It is a legal declaration that God makes saying that we are righteous, that we have obtained what kind of righteousness? Which is His. So, so now you have a righteousness that is equal to His. Great, right? You have a righteousness that is equal to His. You possess that because he declares it to be true. So every person should say, I want to be, say the letter J word, I want to be justified. I want to be justified. And then they should say, how can I be justified? Okay, we, we walk through the points. God is righteous. He demands it of you. You must have the same righteousness that he has. And so here's this word justified. It says, okay, you can have the same righteousness that he has. Say, man, I want it, I want it, I gotta have it, I want it. And he says over and over and over again that if you want it, it doesn't come through the law. It doesn't come through works, it doesn't come through the law. You do not obtain it through anything that you do. Do you think it's somehow possible to earn that? God, even, even thinking logically, God in his perfect righteousness is totally incomprehensible to think we could earn it. It comes apart from the law. Here's how it comes. It is granted entirely by faith. Works play no part in obtaining it. I'm going to say this sentence a couple times today because it is so profound and meaningful to me. So, so we say, okay, we acquire God's righteousness by faith. We are declared righteous even though we're still sinful. 
We're declared righteous. There's this wonderful transaction that happens, which we'll talk about in a second, but we're declared righteous. We acquire it by faith, so then we must say, well, well what is faith? Right? If I acquire it by faith, what is that? Here's what one person said. We hear all kinds of definitions. I really like this. The idea of faith is this. One turns away from himself in utter despair and fixes his hope entirely on the sinless Son of God provided as his substitute. I'll say it again because I'm going to say it a lot. Because that's, there's nothing more important. Okay, there's nothing more important than understanding this. There, there's, it, you know, Michigan lost a big game last night. Big deal. This, this, is, this, is, this is literally eternal life and eternal death. As real as we're sitting here right now, everyone will exist somewhere forever, and your response to what we're saying here right now determines this. You're either on this category of people where you think you're going to do something for God and ultimately be rejected, or you're going to accept what God did for you by faith. So how do you know you're exercising that faith? I love the definition you turn away from yourself in utter despair. You look at yourself. You say, there's Andy. And I step back and look at myself and say, I am, I am a complete loser. Spiritually, I'm morally bankrupt. I'm completely corrupt. I'm a total wicked sinner. I can do nothing to justify myself in God's sight. I must turn away and stop depending on anything that I am doing and look completely and base my entire belief on all that Jesus has done as my substitute. That is faith. It's not saying, I kind of like, that almost hurt, I kind of like doing what I'm doing here, and I want a little bit of Jesus thrown in, just in case, just to kind of cover my bases. You turn away from yourself in utter despair. You say, Rudy is a loser. Nick is a loser. I mean, I mean, spiritually bankrupt is what I'm talking about, right? There's no hope in my flesh. That's what you have to say. And say, Christ alone is my hope. He substituted Himself for me so that I could obtain His righteousness. That's what the song, His Robes for Mine, right? He took the penalty we deserved. And, and we're going to talk about this in a minute. I'm just getting so excited about it because I want to talk about it. This wonderful transaction happens where our sin is charged to Christ's account and His righteousness is charged to ours so that we can walk boldly into heaven upon our death and say we're here because we have acquired God's righteousness by faith and it's nothing that we have done. Boasting is out of the way. Okay? That's good. That's good. Second, so the righteousness of God comes apart from the law. Second, the righteousness of God was witnessed by the law and prophets. The righteousness of God is witnessed by the law and the prophets. Romans 1, verse 2, the way the, the, way the, the book begins, tells us that the gospel was promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. We see over and over in the New Testament how Christ says the Old Testament Scriptures speak of him. We must understand okay, that there has always been one way to be right with God. Old Testament people do it the same way New Testament people did. There's one way to be right with God, and it is through, I hope you've been listening, it is through faith. That's the only way. And Jesus says, I was talked about over and over in the Old Testament. He said in John, you search the Scriptures. It is those that speak of me. Note him on the road to Emmaus when he said he took the law and the prophets and he showed him everything concerning himself. 
Note also the rich man in hell who says, please send somebody back to tell somebody about my brothers. They say, they have Moses and the prophets. He doesn't say, they have the book of Romans. They have the gospel accounts. He says, they have the Moses and the prophets. In, Phil, in Acts, when Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch, he's reading from Isaiah. He's actually reading from Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. Who am I reading about? Is the prophet speaking of himself or is he speaking of someone else? And Philip took that very passage and taught him Jesus, the Bible says. The Old Testament is literally littered with the truth about Christ and the righteousness which he would provide. Everyone in all ages have been saved by grace through faith. It was the, quote, looking forward faith that the Old Testament saints had and it's the looking back faith that the New Testament church has. What do you think these people thought when they brought their little pet lambs to the altar and saw them killed? What do you think they thought? What was the image that God was giving them? That sin brings death. That the payment for sin is death. Either yours or a, do you have the word? Substitute. Either yours or a substitute. So every time they killed that lamb, they are trusting in the promise that as John 1.29, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In, in a sense, these people exercised their faith every time they sacrificed one of those animals. In Romans chapter 4, right in our passage, we actually have two Old Testament saints being mentioned as examples of how righteousness comes by faith. It has always come this way. Abraham and David. First, Abraham. This is, this is some wonderful stuff, and maybe in 10 years when we study Romans together, we can really, really talk about it. Verse 3, excuse me, verse 2. If Abraham was justified, remember, declared righteous by his works, then he has something to boast about. Verse 3, what does Scripture say? This is Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. When you were a kid and you cut the lawn or you shoveled snow and you went up to the house and said the job is done, they gave you something. You earned it. But verse 5 says, to the one who does not work, he said, this is not the way righteousness comes. You do not work, but you trust Him who justifies the ungodly. Romans 3.10-18. That faith is counted as righteousness. The word counted there is the Greek word legizomai. It means to be charged to one account. It's really the word imputed, which Derek mentioned earlier. There are three imputations in the Bible. There are three charges to each other's account in the Bible. Romans 5, verse 12 says that Adam's sin is charged to the account of the entire human race. For by, de for by sin, death entered the world and death through sin. By one man that happened and his sin is charged to your account. It's imputed to you. Then, when we exercise that faith that we've been talking about, when we turn away from ourselves in utter despair, we abandon our hopes and we turn our, and fix our gaze on Christ alone, these two great transactions happen. Our sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21, is imputed to Christ's account. Listen to this verse. For God made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. 
Our sin charged to Christ's account. His righteousness charged to our account. That's Romans 4. How is it charged to our account? How is that righteousness charged to our account? Faith! Yes! It comes by faith. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. You just trust Him who justifies the ungodly. I'd love to have that verse like painted somewhere in my house or, or written on the side of my car. Trust Him who justifies the ungodly. What an awesome thought that is. Romans 6.23 says that the only thing we are owed is death because of our sin. But the one that doesn't work is granted righteousness. Hallelujah to that truth. Then you have David who quotes, who is quoted here from Psalm 32, 1 and 2. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not legizomai, that's the same word, will not impute his sin. And that sin is not imputed because of faith. Thirdly, got to get to this part. Got to get to this part. The righteousness of God um, comes apart from the law. The righteousness of God is witnessed by the law and the prophets. It's a constant theme in Scripture. And then third, we've been talking about this all along. I've been kind of sprinkling it through, but now the righteousness of God is acquired through faith. Now, one thing that has been super helpful to me, and this verse, verse 22 says it, uh, the righteousness of God comes through faith. Verse 28 says it, uh, we are justified by faith apart from the law. One thing that's been really helpful for me, and I've probably shared this with you before, so forgive me for that, but there are two types of righteousness mentioned in the Bible. There is the righteousness of God and there is a righteousness that comes uh, that we could say is man's righteousness or self-righteousness. Okay? And, and what is awesome about this is that they are both, the key passages for both are chapter threes in the Bible. Okay? The righteousness of God, is Romans 3 is really a theme here and we've been talking about that. The righteousness of man is chapter three of Philippians. Paul talks in that book um, about how he tried to go about obtaining his own righteousness. Remember how he kind of writes Philippians chapter 3? So if you can remember Romans 3 and Philippians 3, when you come into gospel opportunities or when you're trying to think about this, Philippians chapter 3 says, man, I was a, I'm just going to paraphrase because our time is short, but uh, I, was a, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was a tribe of Benjamin, zealous to the law, blameless. and all, you know, he's, he's, he's talking about all these good works that he had achieved. And then he says, now I count that all as manure dung rubbish i count that all as trash because and i want to look to that verse and read it i paraphrased some of it but you got to read this here philippians chapter 3 because it, it, it it comes so crystal clear at least to me on the difference between again that's category one those who try to obtain their own righteousness through things that they do and those who obtain god's righteousness simply by faith here it is in verse number um seven Whatever gain I had, all the things I did, Paul says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now this is key, verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Wow, is that good. That's the the split category. You've got all the people in the world who are doing what Paul has said. They're trying to earn a righteousness that comes from the law. And Paul says, I do not want to be found in that condition. (laughs) 
I don't want to be found in the condition where I have gained my own righteousness from the law. I reject that. I want to be found, verse number uh, 9, uh, in Him having the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ and depends on faith. So it's almost like this. If you, if you draw a little table, it would be like, okay, Romans 3 talks about the righteousness of God, which is acquired through, please help me, faith. It's acquired through faith. And what is God's response to that? What is God's response to that? When, when we die, what is God's response to that faith which has been acquired, or righteousness which has been acquired through faith? What does he do with that? Accepts it. He accepts that. He provided it, he demanded it, and he accepts it because you acquired it the right way. Then you go to Philippians 3, and you have the righteousness of man which is acquired through works of the law. What is God's response to that? He rejects it. So simple. And what is faith again? It's the turning away from ourself in utter despair. Throughout Romans, which gives that clear logical presentation of the gospel, faith alone is the expressed condition. Romans 1.16, Romans 3.25-28, Romans 4.2-5, Romans 5.1. Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith means to be convinced of something, to put all our trust and confidence in, but it must refer to the whole person. Let me explain this briefly, and I hate to be brief about it because this is really where the punch comes. This is where the application comes. Here's what people need to understand about salvation. And maybe you need to understand this about salvation today. Maybe you're confused and concerned. Maybe you're thinking, am I in that category where I'm working to earn? Or am I resting totally in this important question? Very important question. To determine whether or not you are really trusting in Christ alone. So here's what people need to hear. First of all, there needs to be content. They need to hear the truth of the gospel. How will they call upon the one if they have not heard of him? Romans chapter 10. He need to hear the truth of the gospel, the content of it, that we are wicked, sinful people, unrighteous before God, but that he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay that penalty for our sins. That's the content. Then they must have conviction, and that is something that we can't do. Oh, I wish we could. We can't do it. The Holy Spirit must provide that conviction. The Holy Spirit must move people to hear that truth of the gospel and say, it is true, it is right, it is fact, right? The Holy Spirit must do that. And then there is a condition. And the condition, right? Because some people can hear the content and that's where they stop. A lot of people hear the content and that's where they stop. A lot of people can feel the conviction and that's where they stop. They have to exercise the condition. And the condition, please help me, faith. They've got to exercise that condition, okay? They have to reckon with those truths that God is righteous, that he demands righteousness, and that he provides righteousness. And I would say that 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 faith has to be exercised in this way. And I hope I'm right on this because this, 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 to be, this has to be understood by all of us. First of all, they have to exercise faith in their intellect. In other words, they have to understand the truths that are shared. Then they have to exercise faith with their emotions. They have to agree with all that the gospel says. Okay? But I don't think that's enough to be saved. It's not in merely understanding the gospel. Someone could understand everything I said today and not be saved. Would you agree? Uh, someone could understand everything I said and not, and not be saved. And someone could even agree. Okay, so someone, someone could say, I get what you're saying, I get it. Someone would say, I get what you're saying, and I agree with it and not be saved. 
They must exercise their faith with their will. They must apply it. They must understand, they must agree, and they must apply. How do you apply these facts? I'm so glad the Bible doesn't give us one way. I'm so glad the Bible doesn't give us like one chapter and one verse where it says, this is exactly how you do it, because I have a feeling that everybody would turn to that verse and just do exactly what it says out of a routine. If I just, if I just say this magic incantation, then all will be well. The Bible uses a lot of different terms to help us to know how to apply it. Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Romans 10.9 and 10, Call upon the Lord and confess with your mouth that He has risen from the dead and you will be saved. John 1.12, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the power to become sons of God. Repent, therefore, and be converted that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. It is simply an acceptance and a belief in your mind and will that God has done it all, that you can do nothing, and by faith, you receive it. You ask for it. You believe in what Christ has done, and you apply it to yourself. You say, I am the wicked sinner who stands in need of the righteousness of God, and I cannot obtain it in any other way except that God has provided for me, and I ask you, Father, to give it to me, and He gives it to you. That's what salvation is. That's what faith exercise looks like. A turning away from self and a trust completely in the substitute that has been provided. It is through that faith and faith alone that the righteousness of God is granted and that we are reconciled to God. Have you exercised that faith? That is a question for you to consider this morning. Are you trusting in anything else except the work that Christ has done? Do you see yourself as nothing and able to do nothing to obtain the salvation God wants to provide? Let me just encourage you with these final three thoughts back in Romans 3, verse 22 says, we already said the righteous God is apart from the law. We said the righteous of God is witnessed by the prophets. We said the righteous God is acquired through faith. And then just three quick things. The righteousness of God is for anyone who believes. That's what verse 22 says. It's for anyone who believes. Some people get upset when convicted murderers or child abusers become Christians. They say, well, that's not fair. That's not right. The grace of God is for anyone who will believe. For anyone. You aren't too far gone. You haven't done too much. You're not too evil for God's love to, to save you. The righteousness of God Number five, comes as a gift through redemption. Verse 24. Oh, the love Christ has for us when He shed His precious blood to satisfy the wrath of God on our sins. And the ultimate application is that all of this, number six, the righteousness of God that comes through faith excludes boasting and is all for His glory. Praise God for all that He has done for us through Christ. And I pray that everyone who's heard this will consider what we've shared this morning. Our Father, as we pause to close our service, I pray that you would work in the hearts and lives of each one who's heard this message. May they give careful consideration to their own standing before you. Those of us who are Christians, may we praise you for what you've done. And those who aren't, may they consider that they might turn away from themselves, despairing of their own good deeds and depending completely on Christ alone to save. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior. 
Oh, God, thank you so much for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.